Ready? Here we go. Let's pray. God, you're good, and you are great, and greatly be praised. And God, I thank you that, uh, that we can have confidence in your word, and we can have confidence in your spirit. And God, that you will accomplish um, the work that you desire in each of our hearts. So God, I pray that we would do our part, that we would just submit um, our hearts and our minds to you this morning. And God, I, um, I know that uh, this is a lot to cover on a Sunday morning, uh, but I just pray, God, that you would just um, have us receive whatever it is that you would like us to receive. And I pray, God, that you wouldn't just um, inform our minds this morning. God, I pray that you would use this section of Scripture to transform our hearts for, for your glory and for our good. And God's people said, amen. Good morning. Good to see you all. We are in uh, chapter 7 of Hebrews, and um, I want to encourage you right up front that there's uh, much of this for some of you um, is going to be too much. <laughs> um, there's just a lot here, um, and I'm going to do the best I can uh, with a large section of Scripture. You know, the, the name Mechilzedek, I um, mean, it's a long name, and they gave him a long name because it's a difficult part of Scripture, hard to pronounce, and hard to teach, but uh, it's God's Word, and He's given it to us, and I'm super excited about it. I've been marinating in it now for a couple of weeks, and and um, it really has caused me to worship. So my prayer this morning that it wouldn't just um, tickle your brain. Um, it's great to have our brains tickled. Um, God's given us intellect and a mind to understand His Word, but He didn't want it to stay in our head. It's to ultimately inform our heart and to shape and transform our heart. So that's my prayer for you today, is that you would just relax, you would take in whatever God would allow you to take in, and that you would just ask him to uh, transform your heart. Um, how many of you have, um, have studied in depth the man in the ministry of Melchizedek? Melchizedek? A few of you. Um, how many of you have like a, a grasp on it that you take a bullet for? Oh, there's one. Man, get up here and teach it, buddy. Come on. Uh, I don't know if I take a bullet, but I, I am more... Um, apt to take a bullet for what I understand today than I was a week ago. I feel like, like God's been really gracious, um, and uh, so we'll dive in today. And I want to ask you right from the beginning, have you ever um, read a series of books or watched a series of movies like The Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Narnia or Harry Potter, where maybe you uh, read the first one and you're wondering where it's going to end, or you read the last one first and you're wondering how it started, or you read the middle one and it's like, well, I have no idea what's going on? Um, there, we have um, series like that. The authors wrote series like that, and so you can understand the entire uh, melodic, melodic line that throws, uh, flows through those stories and understand what the big idea is. And the Bible works the same way. Uh, there's 66 books in the Bible and uh, with various authors, and it all has one melodic theme, one, one plot that goes all the way through it. The entirety of God's Word, the plot, the big idea from beginning to end is what we call progressive revelation. It's progressive. God progressively reveals his plan to bring God's people um, into his dwelling, to bring us under his rule, and to unfold his plan that finds its crescendo or its peak in Jesus Christ, the great high priest and king. It's by grace through faith in this promised Savior that people are saved. That's the story. And the, the Old Testament, and we don't have time, I actually had it in here and I cut it out, but it's important for us to understand at some point that Old Testament saints were not saved 
by anything that went on in the, in the temple or in the Holy of Holies. They were saved by grace in the Old Testament in the same way that people are saved by grace today. But that's for another day. A couple weeks ago, I um, finished in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 9 through 10, um, where the author baited us, introduced us for the first time to this man called Melchizedek. Mel, we're going to refer to him at times today. He said this in verses 9 and 10, he says, And being made perfect, speaking of Jesus, he, Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That Jesus was perfected by his perfect life, and he died the perfect, um, the, the perfect man, and therefore became the perfect sa- sacrifice. And he became, as a, as a result of his perfection, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Not all who do righteous, not all who perfectly obey because there is none, but all who have um, obedience to the call to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And then the last couple of weeks from uh, uh, chapter 5 verse 11 through the end of chapter 6, we have what, what Chad called last week this pastoral parentheses. And what what the author of Hebrews did there is that, he, first of all, he gave a warning to what he called what's called spurious Christians, counterfeit Christians, um, those who um, maybe have reconstructed their, their are reconstructing their faith. They've they've walked away. They're like the prodigal, where he gave a warning to to come back, like to that that if there is true root, there's going to be some level of ongoing or progressive fruit. And then, praise be to God, he gave us a great encouragement section where he encouraged believers to that you're anchored in, that Jesus has gone before us as a forerunner. He said this in chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, where Chad finished last week. He says this, he says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters, in, in, that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, that's the Holy of Holies, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what's the best title for this sermon? Who is Melchizedek and why should we care? Good question, is it not? Who is this guy and why am I going to spend 45 minutes listening to this guy talking about it? I trust that there will be nuggets in here that will leave you in awe and in greater worship of our great high priest. Melchizedek shows up by name in only three places in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 14, in um, Psalm 110, and then several places in the book of Hebrews. But his appearances in these three places mark some of the most significant developments in all of redemptive history. And this man, Mel, might be the most beautiful picture of Christ in the entire Old Testament. And yes, that even uh, I, I would even say that, that it, if it doesn't surpass, it equals the uh, David or Jonah or even Joseph. Melchizedek is what theologians call a type of Christ. T-Y-P-E, type of Christ. And understanding that Mel is a type of Christ will enable us to know more of the person and the work of the anti-type our king and great high priest, Jesus. And I pray these truths, I'll say it again, I pray that they will lead you to live a life of worship of our good and faithful high priest and king, Jesus Christ. The word type, that Mel is a type of Christ, comes from the Greek word 
tupos, which literally means an impress or an imprint. A tupos is what the nails left in Jesus' hands. It was an impression in Jesus' hands. They were holes. But the holes in Jesus' hands um, um, were not the nails themselves. The holes were not the nails. They were, the, they were an impression or an imprint of the nails. So, so Old Testament types are not Christ himself, but they bear witness to Christ. They're a shadow of Christ. Christ is the substance. The types are the shadow uh, or the foreshadowing of Jesus. They were signs that pointed to believers, pointed believers to the reality, which is Christ himself. Traditionally, types in the Old Testament are restricted to persons, places, things, or events which prefigure or foreshadow the person or work of Christ or some aspect of his kingdom. And there's, there's all kinds of them. We don't have time to like deep dive into any of them, but let me just mention a few um, types of Christ in the Old Testament or things that point to um, Christ's sacrifice in the New Testament. Here's some persons. Um, Adam, Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, Jonah, and of course, Melchizedek. Uh, there's events that uh, point to, uh, that are, are types of, of uh, what Jesus fulfilled in the New Testament. The flood, the plagues of Egypt, the Passover, the, uh, the serpent that was raised up, the, the brazen serpent crossing the Jordan. Ceremonies were types like offerings or ceremonial cleansings, feasts or the day of atonement. After Jesus' resurrection, he appeared to a couple of travelers on the road called Emmaus. And these travelers were talking about Jesus and how they had hopes that Jesus was the king and the Messiah, but he died. And Jesus appeared to them and he said this to these travelers in Luke 24, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe that all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, the Pentateuch, and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Melchizedek is what you would call a type of Christ, and Jesus, the fulfillment, is what we would call, or theologians would call, an anti-type. So let's dive in. Uh, in verses 1 through 3, we're going we're to talk about who was Melchizedek. He was a type, but, but why was he a type? In verses 4 through 10, we're going to see um, Mel bless Abraham, and we're going to see Abraham respond to that blessing. And then in verses 11 through 28, we're going to see four qualities of Jesus' priesthood. So in verses 1 through 3, in order to get an understanding of who Mel is, we need to go back to Genesis 14. So if you have your Bibles with you, it's going to be harder to do on a phone, keep a finger in, in Hebrews 7, and then flip over to Genesis 14, and it should be on the screen for you as well. And first, a little bit of context for Genesis 14. What was happening before that is that, if you remember, um, Abraham had a nephew by the name of Lot. And Abraham and Lot separated. But then Abraham got word that, Lot was, that Sodom was invaded and his nephew Lot was captured. And that brings us to Genesis 14. When Abraham heard that his kinsman, Lot, had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went and pursued as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also back his kinsman Lot 
with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the deed of Cheddar Laomer, that's where Cheddar Cheese was first founded, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out, or Salam, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. Just to like think about that one just for a few minutes. That he blessed Abram and he brought out bread and wine. Parentheses. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So upon returning from battle where Abram, Abraham defeated the kings of Canaan and their armies, he was met by Melchizedek, the king of Salem. You know what's really interesting here? I'm going to go back here for a moment because... Um, Never mind, we'll leave it right there. Um, the, the author of Hebrews refers to Abram as Abraham, talking about this period of time. So it gives me more freedom to mess it up. So when I say Abram or Abraham, you know I'm talking about the same thing. There's a, so a few observations I'd like to make from these three verses in chapter 7, and also from the original account in Genesis 14. First of all, um, his name. I want to bring attention to his name, King of Righteousness. I want to bring attention to his kingship, the King of Salaam. I want to bring attention to his priesthood. He was a priest of the Most High God. And then I want to bring attention to what um, the fact that he seems to be eternal. What is that all about? So first of all, king of righteousness. The writer of Hebrews tells us that he is first, by translation of his name, the king of righteousness. In fact, the name Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness. Melech means king. Zeta means righteousness. His name literally means king of righteousness. And what is righteousness? Righteousness is, the, it's righteousness is the condition of man that is acceptable to God. That we are only accepted by God because of righteousness. Righteous means, in essence, perfection. Therefore, as a king, Melchizedek acts righteously and administers Righteousness. It doesn't mean that he's perfect, but it means that he administers righteousness. And it probably also tells us that he is clothed in Christ's righteous robes, that he is a follower of the God Most High. He's a a priest of the God Most High. He must be a follower. And then after Abraham's encounter with the man Melchizedek, the Lord appeared to Abraham in a vision in chapter 15. Don't miss this. Is that like right after this account where, uh, where um, Abraham defeats the enemies, gets back Lot, um, meets the man Melchizedek, Melchizedek blesses him, Abraham gives him a tenth of his possessions. Right after that in chapter 15, Abraham encounters in a dream the God most high. And in this vision in chapter 15, God doubles down on the promise that he made in chapter 12 that he would give Abraham a son and that son would bless Abraham and that son's seed would bless all the people of all the nations. This blessing is salvation. And you know what Abraham's response was to that? In verse 6, and he believed the Lord and what? 
It was counted unto him as righteousness. So right after this encounter with, with the king of righteousness, Abraham has an encounter with the God most high who doubled down on his promise. And Abraham believed, and it was counted unto him as righteousness. It means that Abraham wasn't perfect, but, the, but all of his sin was taken away because of his faith in a promised Messiah that he didn't know would have the name of Jesus at that time. So he's the king of righteousness. That's his name. And then his kingship is the kingship of Salaam. And a variant of that word Salaam means peace or what? Shalom. And this place called Salaam would later be known as what? Jerusalem. Mel was a king of the very place where Jesus would be hailed as king of the Jews and lay down his life so that all who believe in his sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection would have peace with their creator forever. Gives me goosebumps. He is a king of righteousness first, then also king of Salaam, or peace. Calvin said this, peace flows from God's righteousness. There's no peace without being clothed in Christ's righteousness. And after he was a king of righteousness, a king of Salaam, he was a priest of the God Most High. God Most High in Hebrew is El Elyon. And El is a common Semitic term for God. And to this was added the attribute of Elion, which means most high. There's no one higher. He was a priest of the God most high, the one true God. And Melchizedek served him as a priest. And this is the very first priest mentioned in all of, this, all of Scripture up until Genesis 14. The first mention of a priest of the God most high. And it's significant to say that this was before the Levitical priesthood. This is before um, Isaac was born, much less the 12 sons and Levi. Mel is the only one mentioned in all of Scripture who filled both the roles of king and priest. He's the only one other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that was priest and king. Somebody might make an argument that David was king and he also had a priestly role at times, but he wasn't priest and king of Israel. In addition to Mel being a king of righteousness and peace and priest, a king of righteousness and peace and also a priest of the God Most High, he seems to be eternal. Melchizedek seems to be eternal. He seems to have no beginning and no end. In verse 3 we see he's without father or mother of genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. He just pops out of nowhere and he dis disappears into thin air. But historically, in my humble opinion, People are reading, the people have often read way too much into this. They're trying to see Jesus in the clouds. Thinking that, that Mel might have been a pre-incarnate Christ or an angel. But as we've already seen, he is a priest of the God Most High, not a priest and the God Most High. It says that he resembles the Son of God. And we're told in verse 4 and verse 6 that he's a man. So being without father or mother doesn't mean he has no parents. It means that there's no mention of his genealogy. The beauty of Melchizedek isn't that he's eternal, 
but that he is the that he is the one, if not the clearest type of the eternal Christ in all of Scripture. Mel is a foreshadowing of the Messiah. And in verses 4 through 10, I'm going to just do a pretty high-level fly, flyby. In this section, I've titled it, Blessing Comes Before Worship. And we get this wrong in the church all the time. See, God is not obligated to bless you because of your good behavior, because of your giving, because of your serving. He's not obligated to bless this nation because whatever we need to do. That blessing comes before worship. And this is, this is a, a massive point here. It, and if you were Jewish, let me start with that. If you were Jewish and you could ask anyone to bless you, who do you think it would be? It would be Abraham. You'd want Abraham to bless you. There was no one greater to the, for the Jewish people, no one living greater, no one um, who had died that was greater than Abraham. And the greater always blesses the lesser. But in this case, in this passage, in Genesis 14 and Hebrews 7, Mel blessed Abraham rather than the other way around. Mel met Abraham returning from the slaughter and blessed him. And by saying that he blessed Abraham, we're to understand that he prayed for God to bless him. And what happened right after that in chapter 15? Like God appeared to him and promised him again a seed would come and that he received the blessing of salvation. We're told in Genesis 14, 18, that is Melchizedek, priest of the God Most High, blessed Abraham. Then Abraham, uh, then Melchizedek brought out bread and wine to serve Abraham. And I scoured a lot of commentaries because there's a lot of different opinions all throughout um, on Hebrews 7 and Genesis 14. But where I landed, like I couldn't ignore this, that, that, um, that the blessing that God is talking about to Abraham and all those descendants is the blessing that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And how do we remember today? How did Jesus tell us to remember um, his finished work on the cross? It's through bread and wine. It's through the reminder that Jesus shed his blood and he gave his body. We know in the New Testament that bread and wine are a sign and a seal of the new covenant. They represent the ultimate blessing for mankind that Jesus, the better Mel, would spill his blood and lay down his life to save his people. And how did Abraham respond? You see, Abraham, he, he worshipped, he tithed. It's not the other way around where, where Abraham tithed. He got done, he saw Mel, and he tithed, and then, and then Mel blessed him. Mel blessed him. And then Abraham tithes. He worships. He gives a tenth of his possessions to Melchizedek centuries before there was a law to give. Centuries before the Levitical priesthood was even a thing. Abraham would eventually have a son. 25 years would go by from this moment. He would eventually have that promised son named Isaac. 
And that Isaac would have Jacob, and Jacob would have 12 sons. And one of those sons was named Levi, and another son was named Judah. And it was through Levi that the Levitical priests would come. And the Levitical priests' tasks were to collect the tithes. And it's as if the entire Levitical priesthood was still in the loins of Abraham. So the author teaches us that like the Levitical priesthood, men who were committed by God to receive a tenth of Israel's possessions actually gave a tenth to Melchizedek through Abraham. So by proxy, since Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, they tithed. So by proxy, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. What's the conclusion here? A foreshadowing of Jesus' priesthood. A shadow of Jesus' priesthood. Melchizedek is a better priesthood than the Levitical priesthood. You see, we don't um, give and serve and behave so that we can receive blessing. We have been blessed beyond blessing. Therefore, we worship with our finances, with our time, with our talents. Abraham voluntarily gave his best to a shadow of the Messiah in response to this blessing. Do we give the Lord, give to the Lord, who is the substance of our salvation, our best, or do we throw him leftovers? Or worse, do we give our best so that we can be blessed? That is not scriptural. We give our best because we've already been blessed. Go ahead and tweet that. That's not even in my notes. The bonus. Verses 11 through 28, you're going to see the gospel. God created mankind to dwell with him in his perfect creation. And we were to be in his perfect creation, enjoying his perfect love and loving him perfectly in return. But because of sin, the pinnacle of God's creation, you and me were booted from the garden of his presence. However, praise be to God. His plan was not thwarted. His plans can never be thwarted. He's a promise-keeping God. And he promised to dwell with the pinnacle of his creation again. The temple and the tabernacle before it was God's provision for God's people to come into God's presence via the high priest who could enter the most holy place of God's presence. And the temple was a reminder that God was dwelling among his people, but yet we were blocked out. That we couldn't approach God's dwelling place. The priest had to do it for us. And back then, if you were to approach the temple, you came to a wall with words written in Hebrew that said, no Gentiles allowed beyond this point. If you were a Gentile, which is anyone who's not Jewish, you stopped there. There was no provision for you to get near to God. It was impossible. However, if you were Jewish, you were allowed to pass this initial wall only to come to another barrier. It was called the court of the Israelites. And there you would be stopped to make sure that you were pure and clean and that you had the appropriate washings. And many Jewish people were turned away at that point. 
But let's assume you were deemed clean enough and, uh, to, to, uh, to pass through. And now you could, you could see in the distance maybe the, this area called the tabernacle. But you weren't allowed to go beyond the giant curtain into the most holy place. Only the high priest could go beyond the curtain. The big point is that people were prevented from getting too close to God. The priest couldn't bring his people near to God. He could only intercede for them and to make sacrifices in order to hold back the wrath of God. Let me give you an illustration. This was pre-regenerate Dan Hardy. Years ago, there was a PGA golf tournament held at the Castle Pines Country Club called the International. It would attract the best golfers from around the world. It would attract, attract the biggest money in Metro Denver. It's where people would go to be seen and to hang out and watch some good golf. There were insiders and sponsors who could meet and greet the players, eat high-class foods with celebrities and, and the players. I really wanted in. I knew I didn't belong, but I really wanted in. So me and a buddy snuck in. I don't know how we did it. I don't know why they let us. I wouldn't hire that security. But we did. And we even got into the players' locker room. We ate their food. We opened their lockers. We even had conversations with them, acted like we belonged. We faked the confidence that we belonged in order to not be questioned by a suspicious attendant. It only lasted so long when a suspicious attendant asked for our credentials, which we couldn't show him, and he promptly booted us out. A couple of years later, Nancy reminded me earlier that she was part of this as well. I worked for a company that gave me a pass, a all-access pass to the international, to the food, to the people, the players, the greens. I got to be one of those people. It was awesome. While there, I remember feeling guilty, though, and wondering if I really even belonged, and wondering if I would get booted out again. Here's my point, Christian, is that Jesus is our all-access pass. That you're with him. And he promises to never leave you nor forsake you. He stamped your past when he saved you from the penalty and power of sin by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. As we were reminded a couple of weeks ago, we can confidently approach the throne of grace in all of our weakness and receive unlimited mercy and grace because we're with Jesus. And last week, Chad reminded us that Jesus tore the curtain from top to bottom that separated us from the presence of God and anchored us in to his glorious presence, not just for the day pass, but for an eternity pass. In verses 11 and 12, we see that even though the Levitical priesthood was set up by God's good command, they were not able to bring anyone into the presence of God. And this temporary and weak priesthood pointed to a better priest who had come from an eternal order of priests, one who would not sacrifice animals to temporarily appease the wrath of God, but one who would sacrifice himself so that we could enter the presence of the Most High God. And these last 
15 verses. We're not going to read them all. But we're going to look at four qualities of Jesus' priesthood. The first quality is it's a kingly priesthood. Second is that it's eternal. Next is that it's a certain priesthood. And finally, it's a perfect priesthood. First, a kingly priesthood, verses 13 and 14. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe. Speaking of Jesus. From which no other has served at the altar. There's no one from this tribe that has served in the, uh, the, the priestly role. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, the kingly line. And in connection with the tribe of Moses said nothing about priests. He's writing to Jewish Christians whose religious traditions taught them that the Messiah and King would come from the line of Judah and that their priests would come from the line of Levi. But the authors tell us here that the high priest Jesus is, um, is not gonna come, did not come from the line of Levi, but came from Judah's line, the kingly line. Remember that Abraham's son Isaac had Jacob who had 12 sons, one who was Levi, whose line became the Levitical priests, and another was Judah, who had become the line of kings, including King David and Solomon. And Jesus, as we know, it tells us right here, descended from the line of Judah, yet he became a high priest forever after the order or the line of Melchizedek. God's people knew from the beginning they needed a king and they needed a priest. They needed a priest to make sacrifices for their sin, and they needed a king to protect and fight for them but they never imagined that it would be one person. Jesus is a priest who saves and a king who will protect and fight for us. And after his kingly priesthood, he was, we see that he, was an, he had an eternal priesthood. Verses 15 and 17. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who's become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent like the Levites, but by the power of an indestructible life, I'm talking about his resurrection and his, and his ascension. For it is witness of him, Jesus, you are a priest forever, quoting Psalm 110, after the order of Melchizedek. The Levitical priests occupied um, their office and conducted their ministerial duties during their lifetime, but when their mortal life ended, their ministry ended, and someone else took over. But the resurrection and ascended Jesus, who came from the line of Judah, is a priest forever in the line or order of the priest king Melchizedek. Jesus became a high priest forever as a result of the power of his undestructible life. And there's, there's wonderful implications of this. I feel like my mind was just tickled, but like what does this mean for me? And we see it in verses 23 through 25. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, or therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Here's what he's not saying. In order for you to stay saved, you need to continue to draw near to God. What he's saying is that you have a great high priest that brings you near to God, that you are forever in God's presence. And that this great high priest is, is able to save to the uttermost. What that simply means, that he's able to save completely. You might go, well, I, I thought I was justified once and for all. That we're saved by grace through faith in Christ. It's true. You're justified. You're declared innocent at one moment. You're regenerated. You've been given a new heart. But our salvation is an already but not yet salvation. 
It's already in the sense that we have been saved from the power and the penalty of sin. The great exchange has happened. That Jesus took all of our sin and he imputed all of his righteousness into us. But it's a not yet salvation in the sense that we still sin. And we still live in a sinful, broken world, do we not? So we, we, we have an already but not yet salvation. And we're not home yet. Let me give you a picture of what this not yet salvation looks like from Revelation 21. And I saw the holy city. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Jesus is able and willing to save to the uttermost since he lives to make intercession for us. And this intercession that he makes, he's not adding to the justification. If, you're, if you've been justified, you're in. Interceding for us is Jesus praying for us. And he prays for us because we continually, because we continually fail and sin. I love what, how Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, writes about Jesus' intercession. He says it's Jesus constantly hitting refresh, the refresh on justification in heaven, that we're forever justified. He's interceding. He's, he's praying that we would run, that we would persevere. Jesus' priesthood is eternal, and he will save us completely. Next, his priesthood is certain. If you have any doubts about Jesus' forever eternal priesthood, we're reminded that this statement comes with a promise and a guarantee from the Lord himself. Verse 20, 21, 22. And it was not without an oath for those who were formerly, for those who formerly became priests were made such with, without an oath, a Levitical priest. But this one, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus guaranteed the oath sworn by the God Most High. And this is the only place in all of Scripture that the Greek term for guarantee is used. It's translated surety. Jesus himself guarantees the success of this new and better covenant of salvation. And we're going to talk more about covenant next week in chapter 8. The best way that I've have found the best illustration to explain a guarantee is the example of a certified check. I might give you a check because I owe you money for a hundred bucks and you might take it hoping that it, the bank will cash it because there's money in my account. A certified check is a guarantee that there's money in the account that you can, that you can cash it. The perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection of Jesus is our certified check. Like the money's in the bank, he's in heaven. He's gone as a forerunner. He is our eternal reigning king and high priest who will save to the uttermost. And he's interceding for you and me. And he will make sure that we make it all the way home. His priesthood is certain. 
And finally, his priesthood is perfect. The old covenant with its laws, priests, and sacrificial systems were not bad. They were, they were a point. It was God's idea. And they were necessary to point us to their fulfillment, to their antitypes, if you will, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The law perfected, perfected nothing. The, Levitic, the Levitical priesthood was ultimately weak and useless to effect salvation for God's people and enable us to draw near to the throne of grace. Only the perfect Jesus fit the task of bringing mankind into the perfect presence of the God Most High. And let me finish by reading verses 26 through 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a, such a high priest who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which became later the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus is your kingly priest. He's your eternal priest. He's a certain priest. And he's a perfect priest. And Christians, maybe this is what you need to leave with today. I don't know what God's going to send you with. But you have an all-access pass to every good and perfect gift that comes down from the Father of lights. And you know what the best gift is? Jesus. It's salvation not just being saved from the penalty of our sin, but being saved into a relationship with our great high priest, our good and gracious king. You have an all-access pass. And it's been punched by Jesus' perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection. And we get to be reminded of that by participating in the Lord's Supper. And if you remember that Melchizedek, the type of Christ, the righteous king, the king of peace, the great high priest, who is a foreshadowing of a better and more perfect priest, blessed Abraham. He prayed for Abraham. And the greatest blessing that any human being can ever receive there's not a better government. There's not better health. There's not more money. All those are good. They're neutral. They're not bad. But the greatest blessing that any human being can have is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So we get to be reminded that we're recipients of this blessing. And Jesus, on the night before he was betrayed by Judas, after living 33 years of a perfect life, and knowing that he was, he was instituting the new covenant, where that no longer would the, the, the blood of bulls and goats and, and lambs be required to hold back the wrath of God. That had to be repeated year after year. But that he was preparing to lay his life down as the ultimate and perfect sacrifice. 
that all who have faith in that sacrifice would never taste a drop of the wrath of God. They would only receive blessing upon blessing. And that he would save his people to the uttermost. So on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that is being sacrificed for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And after he ate the bread, he took the cup. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Does this take on new meaning? That the old covenant, the blood of bulls and lambs and goats, could not save. Not only could they not save to the uttermost, they couldn't save in the very minute. They just held back the wrath of God. But he said, this is the new covenant of my blood that is spilled for you. Drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. God, thank you. Lord Jesus, thank you. God, you are so creative. You are so awesome in wonder. You are so high above our thinking and our knowledge. God, you are perfect in every way. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that in your perfection, you did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but you emptied yourself. And you took on flesh. And in that body, in that human body, you were tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. God, we thank you that we know the significance of that perfect life, that you became the great and eternal and final sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God, who willingly laid your life down, and you took all of our sin upon you, that for all who trusted in the finished work on the cross, God, you canceled as it says in Colossians, the record of death that stood against us. And I thank you that we don't worship a dead God. But on the third day, you victoriously rose again. And you ascended to the right hand of the Father. The curtain was torn. And we now have a full, everyday, forever access pass. To our great high priest, the king of righteousness, and the king of Salaam. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you pray for us. And I thank you that there's nothing that can separate us from your love. Not our sin, not the sin of other people. And God, I pray that our response would be to worship you, to give our lives fully to you. For your good, for your glory, and for our joy. 
And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.